Welcome to Equivalence by Evelist, a mission-based initiative offering an unbiased source of info to people who aspire to make informed decisions and grow their career in companies who care about gender equity. I am Sophie Luray, and in this podcast, I want to open a dialogue about the notion of equivalence and how it looks like in everyday personal actions and corporate decisions. I invite change agents, men and women who are making it happen in their team, industry, and communities to talk about their journey, their practical tips, their moments of doubt and epiphanies. I hope you enjoy it and tell us what you want to hear about at hello at evelist.org. Welcome to the first episode of Equivalence Podcast. And today we have as a first guest, a very dear friend of mine and a woman of many, many accomplishments, Amoin Makura Noble. Amoin was the first female Australian English speaker anchoring a, a TV news show in the Middle East, a Dubai one, when I met her for the first time. And she started her business later on as an independent TV show producer and director uh, with shows broadcasted all over the world on Sky UK, on Fox News Middle East, and in many, many national TV around the world. She's also the director of uh, a very interesting film festival, the WOW Middle East in the UAE. Why interesting? Because it's a film festival that honors specifically women film directors. Her love for the Middle East and, and Arab culture has really translated into everything she does and uh, specifically into a beautiful photography book and, and traveling exhibition called Faces of the Middle East. Check it out. You can find it on Amazon, I think. It documents social and minority groups in the region. Following that, I guess we'll ask her about it later on, but following that, she founded a, a charity organization called the House of Rest in Iraq that supports and gives shelter to women caught in war zones. So today we have a lot to cover. Amon, you're very young, but it really feels like you had many lives already. So I'd like to start to talk about your career with your love for the Middle East. Um, you come from Sydney. So what made a Sydney girl travel and settle in Dubai in the early 2000s? Okay, well, Sophie, first of all, thank you for having me on your program, Equivalence. I love the name and I'm so honored to be your first guest on the program. I'm really excited. Um, so what brought me to the Middle East? So after almost two decades here, I can still vividly remember I had a great sense of fighting for justice. And my family, from when I was a child, we traveled all over the world. My parents, you know, they took us traveling throughout Europe and, and to most parts of Europe as we know it today and, and parts of Asia. And ever since I was young, my parents always instilled a sense of fighting for justice and doing what's right and also helping people that maybe came from a, a difficult background or they were facing challenges in life or maybe even poverty. And I think um, that sense of justice and also helping people to understand the world on a deeper level and that common thread of humanity that unites us, that's what compelled me to travel across Asia and the Middle East. And in actual fact, I back then had studied a little bit about Islam and other world religions. And I'd studied Islam at the mosque. And, you know, it was back then people really didn't know about the Muslim world. They were a little bit afraid. They were uncertain about the Arab world. And there weren't that many Western women here or expatriates here. I was actually flying back through India 
after covering extremist movements in India, in Mumbai, and I was reporting on the Shiv Sena, which is an extremist movement in India. And I was coming back through Dubai and I stopped over in Dubai and I was just so touched by the hospitality and the fact that, you know, this part of the world was just starting to open up. It was just starting to open up. And I knew quite a lot about the Arab world back then. And I, I knew a little bit about the Middle East and about the culture and the religion. And I was I was really welcomed here in Dubai. And I felt like an, an instant affiliation with the people mm-hmm. of the United Arab Emirates. And that's what led to me actually staying and coming back and working here and beginning my career here in the Middle East. Yeah, hospitality in the Middle East is really something very, very, very unique in the world. Talking about your career, you you were an anchor. And when I was researching a little bit the world of anchoring, I could not help but, you know, falling on the recent movie Bombshell with Charlize Theron and Nicole Kidman on the Fox News chief Roger Ailes, uh, sexual harassment and abuse of power. And I was thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask Amoin about that. I found some very interesting data recently, a survey of around a thousand journalists done by the International Women's Media Foundation. They surveyed what, how women felt in their workplace as uh, media and news anchors and editors and directors. And nearly two-thirds of the women who took part in the survey had experienced one way or another intimidation, threats, abuse in the workplace. Not only sexual harassment, but, you know, general threats or abuse. Bullying, trolling, and obviously emphasis on looks for women, especially the ones that are anchoring and that are on camera. Ageism, all those problems are, are very recurrent in this business. So I'd like to know, what was your experience? And do you think have changed or have evolved since the time you left the anchoring part of your career? So that's a very interesting question, Sophie. So I still believe we very much live in a man's world. My dad taught me that from when I was 10 years old. He taught me that it would be a lot harder for me to succeed compared to my brother or men in general, because just the way the systems are in the world. And even though I have become, like I'd like to think that I've become quite successful in my career and what I do, I have to tell you, I didn't just have to knock on doors. I had to kick them down. It was always a challenge. You're, you're constantly fighting sexism on different levels in the workplace. And I think, you know, for a lot of women, you know, if, if you're, you haven't been prepared for that, it can knock you down and you can't get back up. But I think, you know, that's definitely a reality. It is even more today as it was back then, except we have some infrastructure, I think, in place where women like you and organizations, specific organizations around the world have actually fought to instill certain values to stop it or to curb it, but it's still very much there. I think we also live in an over-sexualized culture now where even some women, they're programmed to think that they have to be a certain way for them to be acceptable in society. And I feel that that's really tough because my whole career, I tried to stay covered. I avoided doing all the glamour stuff, all the fashion stuff, all the beauty stuff. I avoided that because I wanted to be taken seriously in my career. I studied very hard. I finished a degree in communications and media. I did my internships. I also studied in the UK and the US to be able to be taken as a credible source for news. However, I tried to avoid all of that. And, you know, still today you're fighting that image of, you know, you have to look a certain way and, you know, you'll find a lot of women in the media or or in in Hollywood or, or different types of industries where we're kind of front facing you know, they're doing plastic surgery, they're really changing their natural beauty just to be able to maintain their career. 
I personally haven't done any plastic surgery, but many of my colleagues have. And, you know, it's just that pressure. I made a decision a long time ago that, you know, I wanted to be myself on and off the screen. And so there's many opportunities that I lost because I didn't have the right look or because, you know, they felt there was a problem with my nose or my teeth or I wasn't as pretty enough. I had people say things like that to me, even though I was very highly accomplished in the region and I'd covered some of the the biggest stories in the Arab world at the time. And so you're still fighting that whole thing of, you know, women are defined by how they look and they have to, you know, fit into a certain type of box. I definitely did face sexual harassment. I faced it more in the West than I did in the East. I feel in the Muslim world, I was able to flourish a lot more. You know, I think a lot of people were a bit shocked, you know, when they saw me and the fact that I wanted to work hard and really build my career here. But I I have faced it in the Middle East and in the West. I think it's a challenge that many women still face. I believe women. When women tell me that they face sexual harassment and sexism and the whole Me Too campaign, I believe all those women because I know that that's a reality for many women. And even there's many women that choose not to say anything because they're afraid. Personally, for me, you know, I fought every single case that was, you know, I found myself in and, and also my personality. I've got a D personality, so I'm quite a dominant personality. So a lot of those kind of creepos and perverts, I don't usually fit into their box of what would be a victim. So my personality and the way that my family raised me to be confident and strong also kind of repelled those types of people. But the ones that did try anyway, I did prosecute them and I have won every single case against me where I've had to deal with things like sexual harassment or sexism. There are opportunities I had to miss. There are opportunities and there's things that were said to me where I wasn't able to do anything about it and I had to accept it. But I believe that's where it comes down to who you are and your identity. You really have to know yourself. You have to love yourself and you've got to stand up for yourself as a woman. And I think that just comes from years of, you know, just personal development and knowing who I am and and my purpose in life. So I didn't let it affect me. But I do believe that's a huge issue. I think we have a long way to go. We're still fighting for basic rights since the 70s. So I think there's a long way to go. And, you know, some people feel women have really advanced. Okay, we've got the vote. We've got maternity leave. But in some countries, women don't have maternity leave. They don't have certain benefits. I mean, even if you look at the crimes against women, that tells you that so many women are still in bondage. To just bounce back on what you were saying, it's quite interesting. You mentioned that you heard to your face, you're not beautiful enough or your nose is this or that. How do you digest that? You said earlier on, you have to know yourself and love yourself. But when you're in your 20s and a young journalist filled with desire to start this career, how do you take that on and just, you know, bounce back and build up again? It's tough. You mentioned many women cannot bounce back from it. What do you mean? How do you do it? When I look around, I feel there is, amongst us women, there's a lot of self-hatred. There's a lot of self-deprecation. So I find like when I talk to a woman, she will always criticize herself and put herself down. But when I talk to a man, he tells me about how amazing he is. And you'll find that women do it with each other privately and publicly. And so that's something where we also have to look at our identities as women and as, you know, basically half of the, the population on the earth. Why do we do that? That's also just got to do with our identities as, you know, the female sex and and the female race. But personally, for me, I would have to go back and, you know, I have to give credit to my parents. My mother was very independent. She was very forward thinking for her age and her time. 
I, we know when my mother was born, you know, you know, women couldn't vote. They couldn't wear a bikini on the beach. You got a fine for wearing a bikini on the beach. She entered to work into the government when, you know, many women, you know, were not able to. Even if you wanted to, you couldn't really go work. You had to be in the house, be quiet, you know, be subservient to your husbands. You couldn't really have an opinion. You didn't have an opinion in, in many cases. You just stayed quiet. And so my mother really was groundbreaking in, during her time. So I saw that as, you know, her being my role model. And then also my father had an equal role to play. I think fathers are very important. I believe, you know, women, we can do many things on our own, but when it comes to raising children, you do need that masculine and feminine identity in your child. And my father did coach me a lot as a business person as well from a very young age. He was constantly coaching me in and around his business. And that really helped to build my self-esteem is that I was very loved and I was very accepted. And I was also very challenged as a child to think and break those barriers and, and not just be in little pretty frilly dresses playing with dolls in the corner. Like my dad also at the time, he did things that were very painful you know, where he made me work very hard in his business for a very low salary when I was very young. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people would spoil their kids and pamper their kids. I thought it was like torture, but at the time it was character building. <laughs> the other thing is also just, I think, self-esteem. So self-esteem is how you see yourself. And from a very young age, I think those values that I learned from my parents. And then also as I got older, my identity and my faith as a believer and believing in God, my identity wasn't shaped by things around me. It was shaped by what God said about me as a daughter, as a child, as a believer, and that we're equal yeah. and we're made in the image of God. And knowing that, I was never then able to lower myself to the standards of what other people thought. And because I know that God is there and his idea of me reigns supreme, it didn't matter what people said, I would kind of bounce back. And so obviously you do get hurt, but then you kind of bounce back and keep going on because you've got a high self-esteem. Yeah. And then, of course, I can't, you know, I am a human being, so I can't deny the fact that there were times I did get hurt. If you want to be in things to win, part of being a winner is rejection. So you're not going to win every time. But the people that don't give up are the ones that win. So every door where I knocked on or I kicked down and people said, no, I would just go to the next one. And I would keep going because I knew what was in me and I knew that I was focused, I was fixed and focused on, on succeeding. And so I would never let it affect me. But you do have that. And I feel, you know, when we talk about sexual harassment and things like that, you'll find it's usually, well, women who faced it, it's subtle comments now. It's subtle comments and, you know, just degrading comments that if you're not really paying attention, sometimes you can miss it, but it does affect you. And so I think it was overcoming those things. And I think it's still a fight we have to deal with today as well. What you're saying about the Middle East, I, I, I experienced the exact same thing when I came to Dubai, when I, I started my career in Dubai. Um, it was a totally different experience than in the West. And I found not only politeness, but respect for me as a person, not just as a woman or as a, as a male, much more than back home. I'd like to touch upon the cinema and the film production part of your career. You're a producer of a documentary, but you're also a director of a film festival that really honors women in the cinema industry, both featured films and documentary. And again, I was looking at data, love data, very interesting statistics, actually. I read that we women account for 51% of the moviegoers. So we are actually slightly above men as customers of the cinema industry. However, in 2019, and 2019 is not a bad year, women represented 10.7% of the directors. 
19% of writers, a little bit better with producers, 24%, and 70% of editors, which is quite interesting. Up till today, only one female director won the Oscar for the Best Film in History. They have been studying about 500 films in 2019, and movies that had at least one female director employed greater percentage of women writers, editors, cinematographers, composers, and so on. So obviously, having more gender equity in, in the cinema industry would obviously prevent a culture of abuse and power, exactly like in the media, and rape, and such as what we've seen with the Harvey Weinstein uh, and Me Too era. It would prevent, obviously, as well, less objectification of women. But I wonder if stories would be different, if center of interest would be different. And I wanted to ask you, really, what do you think? Because you've seen many, many movies by female directors. Do you think that there's a female cinematic view? Do you think that there's a different viewpoints from a female perspective or, or not so much? Absolutely. So when we launched the World of Women Film Festival, it was to be able to showcase work where we could see the world through the eyes of women. And it's interesting that you mention this because, you know, those early years, we've been running the festival for about eight years as a nonprofit project in the Middle East. In those early years, I would get so many films. And I would tell you, if there was one word that would define a lot of the entries we would get, it would be pain. Those films, like, I can't tell you, there was just so much human rights abuse, oppression, violence, injustice, rape, like just so many of the films were just full of pain. Because I feel at that time, or even, you know, now, there's so many women that are suffering still, and we don't hear their voices. And so, so many of the films I got in those early years were all about that. It was just really, like, almost, it wasn't just a women's film festival, it was a human rights festival, because a lot of the films were just talking about women's stories from across the world where they were just suffering injustice and oppression. And some of those movies, I just used to just cry. You know, there, a lot of them even were documentaries, which were just so interesting and so compelling from parts of the world that, you know, are overlooked and misunderstood because maybe they're not as wealthy as some other countries. And so we forget about women there, but still the fight is the same wherever we go. And so that was the idea behind launching World of Women. Wow, Film Festival is for that reason. And especially across the 22 Arab countries, I felt that we really didn't have very much content at all. I mean, across the world, there are still women making films and they're out there, but they don't get as much exposure and, and platforms to showcase their work, but especially across the 22 Arab countries. And then I had such a demand for the film festival that we just had to go global. So I include global films as well, because there's just such a limited amount of platforms for women to showcase their work. And another thing is, is to get funding. You know, we can talk about all these nice things, but people put money where they care about things. And unfortunately, governments need to do that as well. And we can do all these festivals and things like that. But these women in my film festival, they need to have the backing financially to go ahead and make these films into blockbusters or even to get much wider exposure and do what they do best. And so you can really see that there's just that lack of funding and support for women in film. And that's why we do it. Yeah. I think as a woman director and producer, that's what I studied as well. And that's where my passion is, is to really stretch out and delve into stories and really tell people's stories. I think that I, it, it just, I reached a point in my career where I'd done a lot of things that I wanted to do. And it was like a love letter for me to other women to just give back. And I wanted to do something to really elevate women in a field where I know how powerful images are. Images 
video, reporting, documentaries, they can change people's perspectives. I mean, you can see that with different films. Like even even with the film, I think, Blackfish, where it was documenting SeaWorld and there was Tilikum. It was one of the whales that was in there, killer whales that was kept there in SeaWorld and how, you know, he ended up becoming violent and, and killing some of the trainers and things like that. It was the documentary that ended up changing legislation to protect animals and also, I think, block SeaWorld's division where they where they breed killer whales and keep them in captivity. So, you know, the power of documentaries, by the way, that was a female director as well who made Blackfish, you know, the power of how images and films and the visual image, how it can change society and change perceptions is, you know, phenomenal, which is why I really believe in, in film and we need more women in film telling stories, you know, about women for women. We also need to create films and we need to create content that's for women. It's not for men. You see, even I look at a lot of the Hollywood films, the portrayal of women is to please men. It's not to please women. It's all about men and the over-sexualization of women is to always please men. And so we need more women telling stories about what pleases women and also from the female viewpoint as well. Yeah. And it's interesting to see, you know, in the statistic I was mentioning, it's like everywhere else in the workplace. As soon as there's one female director, it changes the the value chain. Suddenly there's more women participating to the movie. So the tone of the movie changes the the way the the viewpoints change. So it's it and, and the financing is the same. If there are women financing movies, there will be more financing of female directors. It's a virtuous circle. It's exactly like in venture capital. I'd like to move to something different. We have so much to cover. I think I will need to invite you again. We've known each other now for 10 years. Imagine 10 years. I met you when you were still anchoring for Dubai TV. Mm -hmm. Uh, You were a star. And I saw your career progressing. I saw you uh, build as as a businesswoman as well. But I noticed something in you that is very rare. You are a true role model for me. It's the way you always, always, always had time for other women. The way you always took your time, your resources, sometimes your home, to advocate, to edify, to build up other women around you. It's genuine. I've seen it. It's loving. Sometimes you're not afraid of confronting when you think that a woman is not living up to the the potential that she has in her. But in a world where really everyone is so busy and selflessness is such a rare currency, I want to know why and how do you do it? How do you manage to have such a full career and life? And as well, being such a a mentor and in the full aspect of the word mentorship, you are for other women. I'd I'd like to know more about your why and then your how. First of all, all those kind things you said about me, I would like you to know that women like you inspired me and compelled me to break the status quo and build more and go further than what I'd had before. So you were one of the people that actually encouraged me to start a business. I was actually also afraid at that time. I just turned 30. I remember when I started my business and, you know, I was afraid. And it's again, because of society's restrictions, I just didn't think I had what it takes. And you were one of the people that told me, listen, like you're already running a business. Now you just need to actually start a business legally. And that's one of the things that pushed me out there because I was afraid. And I wasn't sure if I could do it and make it work. So 
I think that whenever we see anyone that's successful, especially women, no woman ever does it alone. There's always so many people behind her supporting her, so many links to that chain that makes her who she is. So I definitely didn't achieve anything by myself. I think you are only as big as your network. So the way I'm able to accomplish a lot of things is through network and relationships and mentorships. I never think I've arrived. I never think I know everything. I'm constantly learning. I'm constantly seeing how I can build my network and and add value to others. The moment you move from being transactional to being more of a giver, you'll find that a lot of things will come back to you. There's lots of investments made in people or into relationships or projects where I actually didn't get anything out of it. And then later on, it ended up coming back to be a blessing in my life. As for the philanthropic work I do and humanitarian work, so from when I was a child, it was a value that my my parents really instilled in us. So just the concept of giving. If you understand it, it's one of the universal laws is when you give, you receive. And most religions in the world will, will teach something along those lines. But what you sow is what you reap. And so from when I was a very small child, my mother used to make me give away toys. It was very painful back then to do things like that. So I want you to know I used to cry. <laughs> My mom would say, you know, take two of your toys. We're going to give it to the orphanage. And of course, you know, when you're a kid, you cannot part with any toy because it's like, no way. <laughs> Even the ones you don't play with. Exactly. <laughs> so all of a sudden they became my favorite toys. I'd be crying, but she would take us and, you know, she would make us give things away. And then also, you know, when it came to food, we would always have bags of food we would distribute to homeless people. So from a very young age, I remember my mother always giving and also she would make me give and also donate money to charities and things like that. So it's always been a part of my lifestyle to give. And that also is where you'll find a lot of peace and stability in your success is because some people say, oh, when you get to the top, it's lonely at the top. And, you know, success, it's a very lonely road. It's only lonely if you make it like that through your character. But for me, I never ever did that with myself is that I always was constantly giving and adding value to others. So as I've grown, I've also added value to others. And then I think uh, it was a natural progression to start up a 501c3, the House of Rest. Basically, after covering Iraq and Syria, it was a humanitarian crisis. I've never seen anything like it in the world. 15 million people killed, tortured, raped and displaced. And, you know, you have to have a response to that. You can't go in and see something like that and not respond. It's like a lot of injustice in the world, wherever you are, wherever you're listening to this recording, you have to act on the things that are within your community. So within my community, which was the Arab world at the time, I decided to set up a charity. Initially, we fully funded it ourselves. I was funding it myself and using my own funds. And, you know, it's a privilege to bless someone else and save a life. The greatest thing I've ever done is save someone's life. It's not being on television, writing my books, doing the exhibitions, my TV shows. For me, I don't really consider that as the greatest success of my life. The greatest success of my life is actually saving someone else's life and adding value to them or drawing them out of a, a situation which could have been life or death. And and helping them just get onto a path of a life which is full of peace and joy and happiness. For me, that is the greatest success that any human being can do is to bless someone else. And so it started off as something small. And then initially we received donations and funds from people where I knew them. And so that's where, you know, people just saw the work I was doing and they started to add value and and see how they could contribute. And then from there, we set up a board and we started to grow where we receive donations from all around the world. And we do work across Iraq, Syria and Lebanon. And so, you know, I go down there, I'm on the ground. I'm very, very careful about what we're doing as well, because, you know, you can have these big organizations where you're giving money to, but, you know, is the money really reaching the people in need? And so I really take it as a very serious responsibility to go down and make sure that the funds are being used in the right way with the right people. And so with the House of Rest, 
I really make it a point to make sure that what we're doing reaches the people in need. And as you saw with the blast in Lebanon, we were able to do some amazing outreach programs to offer, you know, clothing, food, medication and, and whatnot to families and people who are really, really suffering during that blast. And I have my contacts and my people who I've worked with for years and years and years to make sure that we are reaching the people in need. And so I love to do that. I think in the latter part of my life, I see myself, not, you know, not retiring and living on a yacht in, you know, off Miami or something <laughs> like that. I'd like to visit there and I like to go there, but I see myself really working in communities and, and working amongst, you know, people where they just need that love and that care and, you know, where we can really be the hands and feet of God on the earth, you know, bringing peace and love and, and comfort to broken hearts. And so, you know, I married a man like that. So that was very important that I was with someone that also had a, a similar vision and so I see myself doing that more and more as I get older as well. And do you see yourself working with girls mostly? Like initially in the household for us, rest was really specifically looking at women in places where war break out. But now that the house of rest is growing into different scenarios, do you see yourself keeping the mission of the house of rest being uh, towards female empowerment or is it going to change? Well, we do a combination of things, but I believe like I believe in giving humanitarian aid, but we need to have something sustainable. So I'm really exploring opportunities to see how we can empower people economically, which is teaching them skills, offering yeah. programs, education, you know, also things like trauma counseling to help people overcome things like sexual abuse, rape or sexual slavery. So also just helping people to get back up so they can have wings and fly on their own where we don't have to carry them. Because if we're going to have something sustainable, I need to be able to empower our survivors in a way where they don't need us anymore. So we're looking at those sorts of things. I mean, we help women and children simply because they're the most vulnerable people in the world. You know, when we go into a war zone, it doesn't matter where the war is, you'll always find women and children suffer the most. And so that's where we tend to focus. Also, I believe women are the ones that can change society the most by how they raise their children. For example, as a mother, how you teach your son to see women and treat women will determine what will happen in the rest of society. So when your son grows up, how he saw you and how you educated him about other women will also determine how he will respond. And so if every woman does that, we're going to have less Harvey Winsteins and we're going to have, you know, less men that are oppressing women or, you know, abuse in general, because you will have boys that have been raised into men to respect women. So it really begins in the home. I really believe it begins in the home. So when you educate women, they educate their children and you're changing society. Whereas when I feel like when you focus on just men, they kind of just take care of themselves. Whereas with women, they'll start to take care of everyone else around them as well as themselves. And that's why even when we give financial resources to families, I give it to the woman because I know she's managing the house, she's checking the medication, she's making sure the kids are in school, she's making sure everyone's fed, clothed, plus she'll take care of the neighbors and feed them as well. Like I know it's that kind of domino effect. Whereas if you give it to a man in any type of hostile country where we've worked in, they may spend it on, you know, alcohol or themselves, or they don't really plan like for the next four weeks like a woman would. Yeah, there's a very strong link now that has been researched quite extensively between uh, healthcare, between actually as well governance of nations, between sustainable agriculture and the fact that women are involved or not in these uh, areas. The more 
women are involved in their communities, the more financial and economic empowerment and education empowerment they have, the more the extended community and even the nations benefit from it. It's the premise of all the microcredit initiatives that have been often disproportionately given to women over men, exactly for the same reasons. Amon, I'd like to finish this conversation by asking you, what can we do to help the House of Rust? And how can our auditors get in touch with you and follow what you're doing? So I think education is very important. As women, we need to be aware, we need to be informed, we need to understand what's happening to the world around us and where there is a need. So I think wherever you are, it's important to know whether it is the House of Rest or any organization in your area, you need to know what's happening and what are the key things as women we need to be focused on and where we need to see change. As for the House of Rest, obviously understanding the refugee crisis in the Arab world and whether you want to get involved with the House of Rest and support the House of Rest, you can donate on our website, which is thehouseofrest.com, or even other charities that are working in this region. I think it's very important to focus on education because when we have that transformation of thinking and of the mind, we're going to see a big difference in the communities and in this region in particular. And then, of course, we take supplies, we take donations. So through the website as well, if you want to get in touch with our team, if you want to ship supplies to this region, we can also let you know our approved and designated locations where they're safe. And we know that whatever you ship will reach our survivors. We can also connect with you about that as well. And then I think in general, just to, you know, just to open your heart to, you know, just think outside of your world. We live in a global culture where everything is about us. And so I think it's very important for us to just break out of that mentality of just focusing on ourselves and start to think about, you know, how we can impact the world around us and whatever it may be or whatever we want to do. And so there's those things. And I think to keep in touch through the houseofrest.com, you can keep in touch with us. There's also wowmiddleeast.com, which is our international women's film fair in the Middle East. You can also keep in touch with us through the website as well. There's some email addresses and whatnot. And then myself personally on Instagram, my handle is hello underscore hemoin. And so I'm not on there all the time, but I do check in and I do post a few times there. So you can also keep in touch with me. I would love to hear from you. And even if you're in this region or across the world and I've inspired you in some way, I'd love to hear your story. Thank you. It was awesome. I'll probably invite you again to dig a little bit further into some of the the topics that we've just really gone to the surface. Uh, Thank you for accepting my invitation. And I look forward to seeing your next news. Thanks, Sophie. I'm so excited and I can't wait to hear more and listen to the other amazing women you're going to have as well. Thanks for having me, Sophie. Thank you. Have a great day.